This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. The book Bringing Nature Home, How Native Plants Sustain Wildlife in Our Gardens, was something of a watershed book. Originally published in 2007, its expanded edition two years later with updated photos and more resources only increased the importance of its message. The native plant movement was not new at the time, but with this book, its message was brought home to the general gardening public. In the book, Doug Tallamy made clear the correlation between what the research was showing in terms of loss of habitat and biodiversity and how important our own home gardens and landscapes could be to improving the outlook for insects, birds, and all other wildlife. Indeed, for the very future and health of our planet. His main points could perhaps be boiled down to two messages. Biodiversity matters and gardening matters. Doug Tallamy continues to bring this message to his students as a professor of entomology at the University of Delaware, to readers of his subsequent books, and to audiences around the country when he gives talks on the urgency of the situation and the importance of us as gardeners in making a difference. Doug is the keynote speaker at the February 2018 California Native Plant Society's Conservation Conference in Los Angeles, and he joins us today via Skype to share more about his own gardening practice and journey. Welcome, Doug. Thank you, Jennifer. It's my pleasure. I would like to ask you to describe your current garden and place and your current gardening practice. I don't distinguish between the classical garden that people envision and my entire landscape. Every part of our property is part of our gardening. Our property is is 10 acres. It had been mowed for hay before we moved in. Our main objective was to remove the invasive species, largely from Asia, and restore various habitats that, that had been there previously. It's a long flag lot. We're not visible from the street, which gives me a lot of of freedom. We have put in thousands of trees and plants. We've watched the blue jays and the squirrels add plants. We, We manage it by keeping some open areas and allowing those trees to grow been there 17 years at this point, and um, I'm now actually heating the house with the trees that we planted from seed just a mere 17 years later. We started, I don't know how many breeding birds we had in the beginning, but we now have 54 species of breeding birds on the property. I am counting the number of of Lepidoptera, the number of caterpillar species that we have, and that's a big job. It's taking several years, but it's going to be somewhere around a thousand species, so... Wow. So we're very happy with the way it's progressing. So where are you physically located? What what township? And then describe when you say we restored habitats that were here. What do you mean exactly by that? We live in, in Oxford, Pennsylvania, which is the southeast corner of Pennsylvania. It's in a eastern deciduous forest habitat. So that's what, what used to be there. But the area has been been, it's literally been farmed for nearly 400 years. Mm-hmm. So it's been a long time since the, those habitats were, were thriving. Um, but typical eastern deciduous plants, oak trees, cherry trees, hickory, walnut, those types of things are the, the plants that we're putting back. We is, is uh, my wife and I, and I actually should just say my wife at this point, I spent so much time on the road that she's doing the bulk of it. And that's okay. actually an important point. Our, our property was so heavily invaded with, with uh, unwelcome plants, autumn olive and oriental bittersweet and Japanese honeysuckle and bush honeysuckle and on and on and on. A lot of people would look at that and and just give up. Mm-hmm. But it became our, our goal to remove those plants, put in the plants that we wanted, the plants that belong there in terms of supporting the specialized interactions that are nature in our area. And my wife has taken over most of that work. Her name is Cindy, and she's uh, right now, I guarantee you, she is outside working on the property somewhere. <laughs> it shows that one person really can make a huge difference on, on a, uh, an amount of acreage. What we did was more or less started at one corner and just kept pushing the frontier back. And you do get it done. It happens even though it looks hopeless in the beginning. Yeah. And I think... One of the important things to follow up on there is that all research indicates is you don't need 10 acres. You can have a suburban lot, and if you plant it correctly, it still provides 
important and necessary forage, and even an urban green space can make a difference. That is so true. Remember, your small property is attached to another small property, which is attached to another one. The biodiversity, the wildlife, the plants that need these spaces are not distinguishing property lines. I always talk about supporting migrating birds. A lot of people say, well, my property is not big enough to support a breeding bird. And that may be true because they, they need a fair amount of space. But migrating birds you know, fly all night and then they have to rest during the day. They come down wherever they, they uh, ended their flight around 5 a.m. and they have to rest, but they primarily have to eat. And if you have space for a single tree, a single plant, that is where they will go to eat. So even the smallest properties can be vital connections in, in terms of helping our migrating birds. Mm-hmm. You and Cindy started this garden and gar- tending and shepherding and stewarding and caring for this 10 acres 17 years ago and were you both gardeners per se what were your earliest influences in life Doug that led you to becoming a nature plant bug garden lover okay those are two different answers the first first (laughs) answer is we had a vegetable garden before we had our our tomatoes and our, our squashes and things like that what changed my approach it really did start very very early on i grew up in a a suburban neighborhood in berkeley heights new jersey ours was the first house to be built in a new development uh and then the houses were added but we were the first to move in so the lot next door to us was undeveloped for a full year after we moved in i was in third grade and there was a little pond on that lot i was just born loving nature so i went over to that that pond every chance I got to see what was happening. Well, the spring, uh, the first spring that we were there, uh, all of a sudden there were toads there singing. Mm. This is the first time I had encountered that, so that was fascinating to me. And, you know, I watched the toads, and pretty soon other toads came and started hugging <laughs> the, the, the bigger toads. And, of course, it was the males hugging the females, and it's called amplexus. They want to be in position so they can fertilize the eggs when the eggs are laid. Well, they did lay eggs and the polywogs hatched and I watched those polywogs develop. Uh, it was it was my afternoon activity for yeah a good month. And then one day I was there and it was the day that the, the little toads were going to come out and start their terrestrial life. Their tail had shrunk and, and they were ready to come out onto the land and they were, they were hopping all over the place. Great moment for me, but right at that time, the bulldozer came and it buried that pond and it buried all the little toads. Oh. I, it would have buried me, too, if I hadn't run, because I don't think the guy saw me sitting there. But um, that made an impression on me. I mean, that, that was the end of nature at that that spot. It became my neighbor's lawn. I actually mowed that lawn later on for 50 cents an hour. Um, but, you know, I, I concluded right then and there, oh, gee, there, there are too many humans here. We can't even share it with our toads. Um, so that experience stuck with me. Mm. I grew up with the traditional sense of conservation, that you have to preserve intact habitats, pristine areas, and that once, you know, once the house is built and and once humans move in, it's over. Uh, And I felt that way for for decades, but um, I don't I don't believe that anymore. I now feel that we can live with nature. We can redesign the landscapes in which we live, our suburban, even our urban landscapes in ways that support a lot of nature. Yeah. Now, you know, we're not we're not going to share our neighborhoods with grizzly bears and a few other things. But what we what we could do, starting with the correct plants, is create the conditions that allow age old interactions, specialized interactions between plants and insects and birds and, and, and reptiles and amphibians. All of these things that are part of our local biodiversity can move into our spaces and and be be quite happy mm-hmm. uh, as long as we think about what what they need on a yearly basis in addition to what we need we can we can blend this a whole lot better than we have done in the past mm-hmm. when you say you were brought up with a traditional concept of conservation where did you get even that basic concept of conservation Doug you know I had wonderful parents who who encouraged they loved animals and they encouraged all the things I I brought home but I don't think I got it from them and I certainly did not get it from school we did nothing talk nothing about conservation uh, in school we you know the term ecology hadn't really even come into into use I think I put it together in that I liked being in those pristine areas I wanted to go look for I love snakes and I love turtles I wanted to find box turtles and my garter snakes and that's where they were. So where are these areas that, that are, are relatively intact where I can go and, and look for the things that I enjoy? Mm-hmm. And then they kept disappearing, disappearing. So 
it's logical. Well, you want to preserve nature, you have to go to where nature still exists. Mm-hmm. I wasn't thinking about putting it back. I, I just didn't think about that. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with gardener and entomologist Doug Tallamy, author of Bringing Nature Home. Doug is sharing with us his own journey from being a nature-loving child to being an educator and advocate for nature, especially in our home gardens. We'll be right back after a break for more. Stay with us. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to hear more from gardener and entomologist Doug Tallamy, author of Bringing Nature Home from Timber Press. His concepts for thinking about the relative importance of the plants in our gardens for supporting our local ecosystems are insights I'm taking copious notes on. Welcome back. Describe your process of going from this small boy who's watching his beloved toads get bulldozed, which is just such a horrifying and sadly all too familiar story um, from from guests. Describe the process of you becoming the educator you would become and your work as an entomologist uh, and your professorship at the University of Delaware. Oh, that's a long process. But, you know, I, I had a, a very traditional uh, childhood, um, and I did traditional things. We played kickball, and we grew up, and and uh, you know, hoped we could get a date and things like that. I ended up in in college. Uh, I was a biology major. I had no idea what I would do with that major. As a matter of fact, I was in a small uh, called pre-med factories. I did not want to be a doctor because I I knew I made mistakes, and I didn't want to kill anybody with one of my mistakes. <laughs> I also knew that I was terrified to speak in front of, of an audience. So mm. teaching was out of the question. You know, I would never, never become a teacher. <laughs> so what's left? You have to be a dentist. <laughs> <laughs> so I went to dental school, but I only stayed for two weeks, um, just long enough to lose all my tuition money. I didn't want to be a dentist. Uh, you, know, I, you know, I was a typical undergraduate who did not seek advice um, so I didn't know what the possibilities were. I had no exposure to research because there was no graduate program at the school I went. Um, well, I went back. Uh, it was Allegheny College. went back to Allegheny, and I asked for advice. And they said, well, gee, you know, you, I had one course in entomology. They said, go to grad school in entomology. I said, great. <laughs> so I did. I went to, went to Rutgers, um, found out, yeah, I really did enjoy entomology. When you learn about the, the zillions of fascinating things that insects do, it, it really does captivate you. There still was no conservation bent in what I was doing, but I got a job at the University of Delaware in 1980, so I've been here uh, 30, 37 years. It really wasn't until we moved in to the the property we started talking about 17 years ago that I, I started putting all of this together. When I was in graduate school, as, as an entomologist, one of the things we focused on was what we call plant-insect interactions. How do insects interact with, with plants? And there's a whole body of theory that, that says, you know, most of the insects that are eating plants are host plant specialists. They can only eat particular lineages of plants because plants defend themselves chemically and the insects have to adapt to those those chemical defenses. And they really can only adapt to, to one or two lineages. They can't handle it all. And that's why the monarch butterfly only eats milkweeds. And, and uh, it's why 90% of the insects that eat plants are, are host plant specialists. So we studied that. That was theory, but there were thousands of papers, research papers supporting that that information. Well, when we moved into to our property in Oxford, Pennsylvania, and, and it was loaded with these plants from Asia, I was walking around one day and I noticed 
I'm always looking for insects because I am an entomologist. That's what I like to do. So in order to find uh, insects, you look for insect damage. You look for little little holes in leaves, turn over that leaf and hope you find what was making that hole. So right away I noticed, well, there aren't any holes in the leaves in the Japanese honeysuckle, in the bush honeysuckle, in the autumn olive and so on. I had to go to the, the native plants, the black cherry and walnut and, and oaks to find the insects. It just dawned on me. I said, well, this would make an interesting undergraduate research project. It was not a surprise to me because we knew about host plant specialization. And there's, there's no way North American insects can specialize on plants from China because they've never seen them before. Mm-hmm. So I didn't think this was, this was uh, you know, news, but uh, there, was a, there was a young lady at school who wanted to do an undergraduate research project. And I said, why don't you compare insect use of natives and non-natives and you can do it at my house? And she said, great. And I said, well, the first thing you have to do is go to the literature and see what has already been done. So she went to the literature and she came back. She said, I can't find anything. And what year was this, Doug? This was, I guess, 2001. Okay. Uh, you know, it's not unusual for undergrads not to be a master of the literature, but <laughs> I looked and, and uh, I couldn't find anything either. Uh, right about then, there was a lot being written about invasive species mm. and a whole list of, of problems that invasive plants cause. But, but messing up food webs wasn't on that list. So I said, well, gee, it ought to be on that list. It's, it's a no-brainer, so uh, let's do some research and see what's going on. Applied for some, some grants from National Science Foundation and USDA, and, and I got them, which that's always a surprise. But, uh, you know, it, it convinced me this really is something the scientific community had not thought about in terms of invasive plants in the past. And that's what changed the direction of, of my research um, to where it is is today. Um, you can look at the evidence. People say, how long? Michael Pollan yeah. wrote, a, wrote a, a piece saying, isn't there a statue of limitation on being, being alien? I mean, if you've been here long enough, you must be a native. Well, I say you're a native when you act like a native. So how do we know whether a plant is, has reached its biological potential here in the U.S. if it comes from Europe or if it comes from, from Asia? Well, what we do is we go to Europe and Asia and we look at the number of insects that use that plant there. So a good example would be uh, Phragmites. It's a huge problem in oh, the east. Yeah. Um, the common reed. There's a genotype that was brought over as packing material in the earliest ships uh, and, and is now, I mean, it's spread through the Great Lakes. It's just, it's just a huge problem. Well, if we look at the plant, the insects it supports in Europe, it's, I guess it's 175 species. So it's contributing to food webs. It's generating a lot of protein that support the birds, you know, a, a functioning member of its uh, ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Well, over here, uh, even though in some areas it's been here uh, almost 400 years, it supports five. Wow. So yes, there's been some adaptation, uh, but very little and, and very slow, very slow. Uh, will Phragmites here in the U.S. pick up more species over time? Yes, it will. But uh, you're talking about tens of thousands of years right. or hundreds of thousands. It's hard to say. The big problem is that in the meantime, right. when it spreads through a marsh and it, it takes out essentially all of the other plants, you're losing plants that support hundreds or thousands of species all at once. So the adaptation that will follow is way behind the rate at which these invasive plants push species from our ecosystems. And that's the problem. It's the rate of change that is, is, is clobbering our, our ecosystems today. So that brings us to your impetus for writing the book, Bringing Nature Home. What made you say this has to happen? I need to write this book. Uh, another good question. <laughs> you know, we started to do the research uh, that these, these grants were funding, and I started to learn about the extent of the problem uh, we, we, we started measuring the loss of, of the important insects. And by important insects, I mean the ones that are contributing the most to food webs. Uh, and in most terrestrial habitats, that is, that is uh, it's, it's the Lepidoptera, the caterpillars that are transferring most of the energy from plants to other, other creatures, particularly birds. Mm-hmm. So in a typical, I can walk into a, a hedgerow invaded with, with uh, Asian plants around here, and there's 22 times fewer insects and 23 times less insect biomass in that area. So in other words, if I'm a bird trying to eat caterpillars, there's 23 times less food uh, in that area. And when we started to get these these numbers, uh, people got interested and I started being asked to give give presentations. I was asked to give talks about this before we even had any data, but then we started getting data and giving more and more talks. And I, and I listened to what the audience 
would ask me after a talk. They had had questions. Many of them became fairly standard questions. But one of them was, we want to read more about this. What can we read? I said, well, there, there's nothing you can read at this point. And uh, we hadn't even written our, our you know, journal articles uh, yet. And people wouldn't go read those anyway. So finally, almost out of self-defense, I said, I will write a pamphlet. <laughs> and you can read the pamphlet. Um, so the pamphlet became the book. I mean, it really was, uh, it was kind of an on-demand on people, which was interesting to me because there was interest out there. People, <laughs> the general public does notice the loss of the things that they grew up with. Um, they don't see the fireflies anymore. There are fewer birds and so on. And they're concerned about that. They, a lot of people hadn't put it into words, but they're concerned. And now here I'm coming along saying, hey, look, there's something you can do about it. This is an environmental issue where you can actually act and see a result. If you put productive plants in your yard, you can see nature come and use those plants. You can see the birds return. It's immediate feedback that is positive reinforcement. And right away, I've, I've seen that people have gotten very excited about it. This is something they can do. They can do it at home. It doesn't cost a lot of money. If we're trying to get our kids interested in nature and get them away from their, their devices, we can do it right in our yards. We don't have to take them any anywhere. So it was, it was kind of a... a, a feedback loop between my the audiences I talked to and what I knew to be very important that you know, propelled me to write this book. I'd never written anything for, for the general public before. All along while I was writing, I really didn't think anybody would read it. Um, so <laughs> it, it has been a tremendous surprise to me. Uh, there really is. There's a national interest in this. And I don't think we're going back to the old way of, of simply thinking of plants as decorations. You know, people are now recognizing they they do important things. Right. And if we don't have enough nature left out there, they've got to do those things right at home. So for those people who haven't read the book, um, kind of summarize the basic thesis statement. It's clear that the the relationship between our plants and our insects and our bigger wildlife and us is not completely clear to a lot of people still which is amazing. And so we just can't really say the, the relationship enough. Right, right. You know, it's not amazing because we do not teach this in, in school. Uh, I think the ecological literacy of the general public is um, it's very low because uh, it simply was not part of any curriculum that I was involved in. And I guess it's a little bit better now. But but still, I, I was invited to talk to an English 101 class just a couple of weeks ago here at the university. It was about persuasive writing. So, uh, okay, I was invited to talk about persuasive writing and I used the monarch uh, butterfly as an example. And, and I said, well, of course the monarch butterfly is a specialist. And then I paused and said, what does it specialize on? I don't know why I asked that question because I just assume everybody knows they're specialist on milkweeds. Well, no one in the class knew they ate milkweeds, including the teacher. Oh. And this is, this is 2017 and this is a university. So it reminds me, Right. We're just not talking enough about this. The simplest part of the premise is that your little piece of the world, your property is an important component of your local ecosystem. And if you don't landscape in a way where it contributes to that ecosystem and instead detracts from it, well, pretty soon you have ecosystem collapse. Well, that includes all of the, the plants and animals that are in that ecosystem that are that are running that ecosystem, producing what we call ecosystem services that keep us humans uh, you know, alive and happy on this, on this planet. So that's message one. Your piece of property is important for conservation, no matter how big or how small it is. Message two is the plants you choose to put on that, that piece of property are going to make all the difference in the world because all plants are not equal in their ability to help that ecosystem function. Uh, so we talk about you know, why that is, but you've got to make good plant choices. Another important message is we have to use more plants. At this point, we love these open savanna-like landscapes where we have a few trees and then vast lawns. We have an area of, of lawn the size of New England right now in, in North America, and we're adding 500 square miles of lawn every year. Well, lawn is a, is a deadscape. There are so many things we have to do at home. We have to support food webs. We can talk more about that in a few minutes, but we also have to sequester carbon. It's the plants that are sequestering carbon in our yards and pumping it into the soil. Lawn is the worst uh, in terms of doing that. We have to manage watersheds. 
everybody lives in a watershed. Nobody has the right to landscape in a way that destroys that watershed, that encourages floods and dirties our water. And it's the plants that make make the difference there. And of course, we have to support pollinators. We Pollinators are getting a lot of press these days, as they should. And most people say, well, we have to support pollinators because they pollinate our crops. That's actually a tiny, tiny part of the reason we have to support pollinators. They support, they pollinate 80% of all plants and 90% of all flowering plants. If we didn't have our pollinators, we'd lose 80 to 90% of the plants on the po- on the planet. Doug, will you yes. say that one more time really slowly? <laughs> okay, it is it is pollinators. It is the animals that pollinate plants as opposed to wind, pollinate 80% of, of all plants and 90% of all flowering plants. So again, if we lose our pollinators and we are losing our pollinators, we would lose 80 to 90% of the plants on the planet. And if we humans want to stay on this planet, that is not an option. So saying, well, where the pollinators are going to be fine out in nature. You know, when you get up in a plane, you look down, there's not a lot of nature left out there. If Our, our grandchildren live in, in Portland, Oregon. So mm-hmm. we, we drive from Pennsylvania to, to Portland across the U.S. Uh, and in the east, it's it's suburbs. Cities and suburbs, as you move a little farther farther west, it's corn and soybeans all the way to the end of Nebraska, and then it's cattle all the way to the Pacific Ocean. It is very difficult to drive and not see a fence someplace. And every place you see a fence, there there are cattle there. And it looks like it's unoccupied territory, but the plants in those areas have been changed completely from what they were. Most of it is overgrazed. So we humans have, you know, we've dominated the landscape. I don't want you to think there's no nature left out there, but it's a tiny fraction of what we need to run the ecosystems that support us. So if we're not going to do it in nature, we have to do it at home. And the the interesting thing is it's easy to do it at home. This is not hard. Right. This is not hard. We just have to pick the plants that are good at doing these things. Yeah. And That's I, what the book's about. And I want to come back to a couple of things you said there because in Northern California, and I moved here from Colorado 10 years ago, we can drive for many, many miles and we'll see plants we'll see a lot of plants, we'll see what look like green space. But when you look at it more closely, it is for large portions of the year, completely barren. So you mentioned the corn and the soybeans. And the fact is, those are only one is wind pollinated, and the other is uh, only in bloom for a certain amount of time. And much of it at this point is either, you know, it, it has some perhaps genetically modified issues or some other contamination that cause a problem in the in the system for the rest of the year it's 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 wasteland for insects and the same is true here i live in big agricultural area and that area is dominated by rice walnuts and almonds rice and walnuts are wind pollinated and almonds are pollinator pollinated, but they are only in bloom for a short period of time. So for the rest of the year, it is a wasteland. It is barren of food for pollinators and other wildlife. And this presents this problem of it might look like it's nature, but it is inhospitable to these creatures. And so their habitat is completely fragmented as well as Um, degraded once they actually get there. And I think the other term that I want to make sure we talk about is what we mean when we say pollinators, because people like to think of the, you know, sort of poster child for pollination, and that's the honeybee. And they like to think of butterflies. And I think at the higher level of ecological literacy, they think of native bees. But there are a whole host of less maybe attractive and um, cute or poster children candidate pollinators like flies and beetles and moths and all of these are really important to filling out this level of the food shed. You are you are so right. Um, we do have 4,000 species of native bees in addition to the one species of honeybee we brought over from from Europe. Many of those are, again, what we would call host plant specialists. They require particular plant genera in order to rear their young. So, for example, in in New England, um, there are 13 species of bees that can only reproduce if there's goldenrod in bloom. Mm. So we can have corn or soybeans or almonds or whatever, but if there's not goldenrod, you lose 13 species right there. If you don't have native willows, you lose another 11 species. If you don't have native asters, you lose another eight species and, and so on. So it's an, we are spending a lot of time putting in 
what we call pollinator gardens. Uh, and people will plant zinnias and, and butterfly bush and, and a lot of things that do bloom. They have a lot of nectar and bees do go to them and so do butterflies. But if you look at them, those are generalist species. The bumblebees are, are pretty much all generalized species and those specialized bees, many of which are small, you wouldn't even recognize them as a bee, uh, have disappeared from these gardens because they're not using the plants that those those bees need. We have to distinguish between true pollinators and flower visitors. There are a lot of insects that visit flowers, but far fewer that are actually transferring pollen from the male parts of the flower to the female. We do want to service the, the, the flower visitors. Most of our butterflies are, are uh, visiting our flowers. They give us great joy and they're beautiful, but they're actually not very good, good pollinators. One of the under uh, appreciated groups of pollinators would be our moths. We have upwards of 14,000 species of moths in the US. Most of them are nocturnal, so we don't see them. And many of them, if you go out at night and look at your, your flowering plants with a flashlight, many of them are cover, you know, they're covering these plants at night. So even though functionally they're not as good at transferring pollen as many of our bees, they still do a lot of pollination. And there are, there are a number of, of uh, plants that are moth pollen specialized uh, themselves where they're only only pollinated by particular moths i like to focus on moths because because they're so important not in, just in terms of pollinator but because that's the major group again that is producing those juicy caterpillars that right. are transferring energy from plants to to other creatures and people don't appreciate how many caterpillars we need to have have these creatures. One of the things we've looked at is, is a chickadee reproduction here in the east. Now chickadee is a tiny bird. It's a third of an ounce. That's equivalent to uh, four pennies. <laughs> well, to raise one clutch of chickadees, it takes between 6,000 and 9,000 caterpillars to bring them to the point where they leave the nest. And after they leave the nest, that's 16 days worth of raising them. After they leave the nest, the parents continue to feed them caterpillars for another 30 days, but they're flying all over, so nobody's been able to count those. But that's thousands and thousands of caterpillars yeah. to support a bird that wants to breed in your yard. And it can only do it if you produce thousands and thousands of caterpillars. So, so saying, well, I saw a caterpillar once, <laughs> that's a good start, no. but we need to see a lot of caterpillars. And you say, well, they're gonna eat all my plants. No, they're not. The chickadee is going to eat them first. Um, right. It's part of that that uh, that balanced food web where the plant makes energy, the insects eat the eat the plant, but then so many other things eat those insects before they are defoliating your your yard. Right. That's an ecosystem imbalance, and that's what we're striving for. So this brings me to your second book called The Living Landscape, which you co-wrote with Rick Dark, and it's on designing for beauty and biodiversity in the home garden. Taking the, the devil's advocate, going back to your zinnias and um, your butterfly bush, uh, I, I am a home gardener. I love my roses, Doug. I love my roses, and I love <laughs> I love my peonies. And there are several native roses in the state of California, and there are there's at least two native peonies. But th those aren't the ones I'm talking about. I'm talking about the ones my grandmother raised me with, and my mother raised me with, and they have all this emotional attachment. Do I have to give those up? Tell me, tell me how I do this. No, <laughs> you do not have to give those up. Uh, there is room for compromise here. Now, now this is me talking because there are there are some native plant zealots out there that say there's no room for compromise. But um, if we're trying to recreate function in our yards, we need the plants that are best at doing that. But it doesn't mean we can't we can't do what we've traditionally done, and that's decorate part of our our yards with very pretty plants at the same time. So one of the things, the latest thing that we're, we're learning, which isn't in any book yet, is that it's really a very small percentage of your local plant genera that are generating most of the food. Mm -hmm. It's about 5% of the available plant genera that are making most of the food that are, that are, that are uh, fueling these food webs that keep the other biodiversity around. So not using those is really not a good option. We need to have those in the landscape. But once you've accomplished that, once you have those powerhouses in your landscape, um, there is room for compromise. You know, in the in the east here, we use a lot crepe myrtle. It's a uh, it's a plant from from Asia. It is not invasive. It doesn't move around, uh, but it is planted a lot. 
you know, it's a it's a gorgeous plant. You can get it in any color. It's not too big. It has exfoliating bark, and it's a great accent. So use it that way. I like to I like to compare it to statues. Um, you you can have a gorgeous statue in your yard, but it's biologically inert. It's not adding anything, any mm-hmm. life to your yard. So we're we're looking for compromise. We're looking for balance. How to do that? is is accomplished by the the plant choices you make and your decisions about the amount of plant material you you use but the designs i mean there's unlimited number of designs and it's funny because a lot of our native plants here in the u.s are used in formal gardens in europe all the time right (laughs) Uh, and i joke i say well it's okay over there because they're non-native and it works But, (laughs) but it shows that that um it's it's not the plant that decides whether a, a, a design is formal or not. It's it's the design itself. Right. Now, um, let's so, go yeah. back, uh, if we can, to these workhorse genera that you were referring to earlier. Can, can you give me an example of the workhorse genera in your area? Oaks. Oaks are number one. They're yeah. number one in a number of ways. But So if we count up the number of Caterpillar species of Lepidoptera species that use oaks in my area, it's 557 species. And if you think of each one of those as a species of bird food, that's 557 species of bird food. Now, I can compare that to other native trees like tulip poplar. Mm-hmm. It's, a, you know, it's a standard in our, our forests. They support 21. Wow. So 557 versus 21. And if I compare it to ginkgo from Asia, which is a typical street tree, or or zelkova, another street tree from Asia, they support zero. <laughs> so right. we're talking about big differences here. Native prunus, uh, so black cherry and pin cherry and, and American plum. Okay, so quercus and prunus, yep. Uh, salix, willows. Okay. Um, now, you know, you're in California. Yep, but already I can see that we have some overlapping um, correlations because oak is definitely oak and salix would be high on our list as well. Mm-hmm. And let's throw let's throw pinus in there as well. Your pines are extremely important. Mm-hmm. That list is going to differ as you move around the the country. Right. We now have um, ranked list of plants for every county and every state of the country, and that's. Creating the, those lists allow us to see these patterns. When I say ranked, they're ranked in terms of their ability to support caterpillars. Okay, so when you say we have these, who's we and where are those? We is my lab, but now they are posted on the National Wildlife Federation website mm-hmm. called Native Plant Finder. So you, you plug in Native Plant Finder and your zip code and the ranked list of woody plants and herbaceous plants will pop up for your county. And this is a huge step forward because it allows anybody anywhere to see what those powerhouse plants are. And if that is your goal, if your goal is to is to is to really make a, a vibrant property, those are the plants you need to to focus on. It doesn't mean that you can't have something else, but it does it does mean you can't ignore those those plants and succeed. Right. So if you if you use those 5% of the plants, you can generate 75% of the of the food in your area. If you don't, you're only going to gen- generate 25%, even if your landscape is 100% native plants. That 25% of the food you need is, is a failed food web. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today, we're speaking with gardener and entomologist Doug Tallamy. Doug's writing and speaking around the country on the importance of the biodiversity of insects and our garden's important role in supporting them is helpful and inspiring as we head into a new season of planning our gardens for the coming year. We'll be right back for more after a break. Stay with us.
This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back after a break to hear more from gardener, author, and entomologist Doug Tallamy. His book, Bringing Nature Home, was a watershed book about the importance of the home garden to supporting biodiversity. Welcome back. A year and a half ago, we hosted one of the representatives from the Xerxes Society about their book talking about this very subject, specifically giving information on plants for around the country and what those plants were able to provide in terms of not only pollen and nectar, but larval food source. And that, I think, comes to what you are saying about the importance of salix and oak in providing food for the caterpillar stage of these creatures. And and as you mentioned earlier, and I think bears repeating, this is where moths and butterflies are particularly important. When you were talking about the chickadee and the hatching chickadees, I had this sort of graphic image in my mind of one little chickadee as a, you know, a cartoon illustration and the 6,000 yeah. caterpillars. But when you when you look at that, you know, and as a gardener, the idea of 6,000 caterpillars anywhere in your garden is a little troublesome. But if you then, you know, get the image in your head of one chickadee, you're like, okay, that's good. Like all of a sudden it becomes a different weight in your mind. Yes. Another thing I typically do in my talks is show a picture of an oak tree in my yard that I planted from an acorn. And and when I did this, it it was uh, 14 years after I had planted it. So it was it was 25 feet tall. And um, what I did was go around that oak tree and count the caterpillars that were just within my reach. So at head height that were on the branches and it turned out to be 410 caterpillars. Then I stood back and I took a picture of the tree and I asked people, how many of those caterpillars can you see? And of course the answer is none. Mm -hmm. How much caterpillar damage can you see? And the answer is none. And that is the distance at which we typically view our trees. So your plants have a lot more caterpillars than you know. Yet, if I knocked on your door and said, you get 410 caterpillars on your tree, <laughs> spray, what? you know, do something. We have this idea that if an insect is eating eating a uh, plant, it's bad and the plant will die. And that is simply not true. The, the plants have been providing energy for insects and other, other creatures forever. Uh, it's a normal interaction. Yep. That's why they have those plant defenses. So the only the insects that are adapted to those trees can, can eat them. And they're supporting those natural enemies that are eating those caterpillars before they exert too much damage. And even if if you know if all the stars align and you get too many insects one year and you do have some defoliation, plants are good at handling that. They'll mm-hmm. bounce back. Um, so, so it's really more a matter of aesthetics. We're worried, oh, if there's a little bit of the leaf gone, it's not going to look perfect. But remember, it's doing things. It's not just a decoration. Right. And in some cases, they are absolutely built specifically to withstand that. So I'm thinking here of one of our native endemics, um, the pipevine swallowtail, which people right. adore. Right. It has a very specialized relationship with our native pipevine vine, Aristolochia californica. And it is the only, that vine is the only larval food source for our specific species of that butterfly. And every spring, the butterfly comes, lays the egg, the eggs hatch, the caterpillar goes through its various instars, and they are voracious eaters, think the Very Hungry Caterpillar by Eric Carle. And it completely defoliates that vine, literally completely defoliates that vine. And once the caterpillars go into their chrysalis and then hatch into their mature form, the vine comes right back. So I think recalibrating what we see as aesthetically beautiful or appropriate is also part of this process for us as gardeners. You know, that brings up a good point. The only reason it completely defoliates that vine is because that's the only vine there. Right. (laughs) Um, in In a natural setting, you would have a lot more pipe vine. It's true with the monarch, too. I've had people say, well, I planted milkweed in my yard, meaning they put one milkweed rabbit in their yard. Right. And then worms got on it, so I squished them. Oh. <laughs> Those, of course, are the, the monarch oh. larvae. You have to have a milkweed patch. You want to have enough material so that the butterflies can reproduce on them without running out of food. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and 
you want to mimic what a natural situation would be. So it would be it would be a milkweed patch. It would be a whole fence row of of pipevine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then then you can support these things without complete defoliation. They don't want to defoliate it because then they run out of food and a lot of them go hungry. And that's that's not good. That's so. not good. And um, there are great resources out there uh, as well as your book, but very good resources on exactly how you do this and, and setting up your garden so that it has flowers all year. It has pollen and nectar. In in colder climates, it's not completely all year, but as long of the year as you possibly can, um, and that you have larval food source through different shape flowers, color flowers, size of flowers, and and different foliage. Um, the Xerxes Society book is one of them, and uh, certainly the research coming out of UC Berkeley from Gordon Frankie's lab, the Urban Bee Lab, has a lot of this information as well. The and I think one of the important things as well to remember is that I might be in Northern California and you might be in um, Pennsylvania, but the fact is these general concepts apply equally no matter where you are, and um, they can be adapted to your specific location no matter where you are. You are coming in February to speak to the California Native Plant Society's Conservation Conference. Uh, we have a we are a large state, a biodiversity hotspot, and we are a large native plant society doing a really vast range of activities that I think bear fruit for the entire globe, not just for us. Talk about what what it means to you to come to this meeting and why it was important, even though you are in Pennsylvania and we are in California. Why was this an important speaking engagement for you? Uh, because I haven't been in California very much. I mean, you, you, as you said, you are a, a really biodiverse state. You have a lot of people. You have a lot of interest. This is a great opportunity to reach a lot of people at the same time. It's been 10 years since you first wrote Bringing Nature Home. And just this last month, there's been a lot of press coverage of the reporting on um, studies coming out of Germany and the really exquisitely painful loss of what appears what appears to be great loss of insect diversity in natural areas in Germany. What what do you what do you do with that information, Doug? And and how do you integrate that current research even after ten years of hard work? What do you do with that? I say finally, finally we are talking about this. Um, this is not new. Mm-mm. This is not new, new information. Well, the fact that people are measuring it is new, and that's that is great. But the decline of insects is not new. It's been going on for quite some time. It's timely for two reasons. Way back in 1987, E.O. Wilson, Edward O. Wilson, wrote a paper. It was the first paper in conservation biology called The Little Things That Run the World. And he was talking about the conservation of invertebrates, uh, but really he's talking about the conservation of insects. And he, in that paper, he said, if insects were to disappear from the planet, this is what would happen. You know, you would lose your pollinators, so you would lose your flowering plants, so it would change the structure of the entire uh, terrestrial uh, globe. Food webs everywhere would collapse, so you would lose mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, freshwater fish, including humans. Not that we're freshwater fish, but we, (laughs) we would disappear. Earth would start to rot because all of the decomposers that are recycling dead plant material um very quickly would would be gone in other words it would be it would be an ecological disaster of of unprecedented size he was he was just trying to point out the importance of insects he wasn't really saying oh and by the way we're losing them but that was 1987 and every time you lose a habitat you're losing insects and and when you look at the sterility of the landscapes we have created everywhere and any entomologist can see those insects are are gone so the fact that we're measuring it now actually the honeybee the you know colony collapse syndrome and the decline of the monarch have done us a favor in that it has started to bring attention to the fact that all is not well mm-hmm. if we're losing the monarch we're losing other things as as well right so uh, it, we have to recognize the problem before we can start to to address it. I just want to emphasize uh, the role that that you know the the average citizen can play 
whether or not you own property, a lot of people do own it. That's a little piece of the biosphere and property ownership is a responsibility. You know, it's, it's, we all consider it to be our rights, but if we're going to carve up the land into, into pieces and say, you own this and I own that, that, that is a responsibility. We have to maintain the life on that little section of, of earth. If you don't own property, you still live someplace. You live in, a, in an apartment complex or a condo, and that area has a landscape. You can influence how that is landscaped. You can influence how your local park is landscaped. And if we remember that, yes, we want our landscapes to be pretty, but they also have to be ecologically functional. Uh, we can we can win this. We can win this battle. And I would like to add that ecologically functional is beautiful. They're, they there should is beauty be the and same. Function. You are so right. Yeah, so yeah. Right. yeah. Thank you very much for being a guest today. It has been an honor to speak with you, and I very much look forward to your keynote address at the Conservation Conference. Thank you for all of your hard work. On My pleasure, my yeah. pleasure. Doug Tallamy is a home gardener with his wife, Cindy. He is also a professor of entomology at the University of Delaware. Ten years ago, he wrote the watershed book, Bringing Nature Home, How Native Plants Sustain Wildlife in Our Gardens, available from Timber Press. In the book, Doug made clear how important our own home gardens and landscapes could be to improving the outlook for insects, birds, and all other wildlife, indeed for the very future and health of our planet. His main points could perhaps be boiled down to two messages biodiversity matters, and gardening matters. Doug is the keynote speaker at the February 2018 California Native Plant Society's Conservation Conference in Los Angeles. To see photos illustrating my conversation with Doug Tallamy, visit cultivatingplace.com. While you're there, make sure to subscribe to the newsletter for updates on guests and other quantum gardening stuff. Want to be part of the conversation? follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. And if you're moved, share with me there what biodiversity looks like in your garden. I'd love to know. Join us again next week as the conversations continue on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Thank you for listening. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio. The program is made possible in part by the Stanley Smith Horticultural Trust. Our producer is Sarah Bohannon. Our communications coordinator is Casey Gardner. Original theme music by Matt Schultz. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.